Ready? It's up to you. We can talk a bit. Then I'd have to edit. So I'm going to record. And just start from. (laughs) I don't want to edit anyway. um, (laughs) Well, let's. This is this is kind of. Well, we bumped into each other briefly at the at the ARC conference, and um, well, let's let's start with ARC. Uh, How did you? First of all, as I told you there, I thought that was the speech of your life. Um, I was hanging out with with all of the artists there. And the day one, they were all sort of pulling their hair out and asking questions like, do I belong here? Is this where I belong? What kind of bait and switch did Peugeot get us into? And then... um, I felt the same way by the... I felt the same way. After like the first few hours, by the time Vivek had done speaking... And the two speakers of the house had spoken. I was like, I'm getting, I'm getting on a plane. I'm going home. Like, what am I doing here? This is crazy. <laughs> but then it got better. Luckily then it, it got, got better. better. Yeah, it got better. But but I thought, and, and so what I wanted to at least start with is, is civilizational Christianity. Because when Os Guinness said that, something clicked for me. And I said, oh. And a whole bunch of things started falling into place in terms of how many of the different issues that we're talking about, the Protestant Reformation. Um, twice in those days, I believe you mentioned, when when the challenge of, of pluralism came up, you mentioned the emperor. And I thought, well, well now that this is getting super interesting. Yeah. And so... so- <laughs> I, I think when we look at, I mean, what the whole, the, after day one, it was like, wow, this is kind of make, is this make the British empire great again? Is that what this is about? And, um, and all of the tensions in American culture. And then I thought, you know, in some ways, Jonathan, your life, when you think about, you know, f- the French Canadian um, that was a civilizational Christianity. And one of the things that we've seen over the last 50, 60 years are the death of, so, you know, sort of the, the Catholic, Catholic, French, Canada, I mean, Quebec, Ireland, a lot of people say Poland is going to be sort of the next one to kind of come apart. Um, I mean, those those kind of imperial, those small empires where there was a cohesive there was a cohesive thing and and part of what we're dealing with is the in the fact that america became a civilizational christianity without an emperor without a pope and it was sort of this implicit spirit that, that sort of reached its height at the united nations the united nations declaration of human rights was kind of the height of WASP, Protestant, um, civilizational Christianity, and it's continuing to sort of unravel, which has led to all of this talk about Christian nationalism in the United States. Um, and, And a lot of the things that you deal with in your Daily Wire series in terms of the end of the world, I mean, that's all connected with sort of the ending of modernity. And so... At the art conference, I'm watching this, and there are these tensions, and I thought it was exactly what what you had with Jordan when you first talked back with him, 
when you said, Jordan, you're on, you've got a foot on both, you know, both continents and they're going like this. And, and that's, you know, transitional figures and liminal figures are often like that. And I think Jordan is that, but so then, okay. So, so the way forward, um, in empire was a empire was a way to deal with pluralism because the ancient empires were enormously pluralistic. And of course, Constantine had to do that because Constantine too was sort of, you know, he was sort of half pagan and, and, and so he's at that liminal time when things are moving apart. And so then I thought, okay, what's going on at this art conference? And so you've got some, you've got some Protestants like the, the Strouds who are, you know, hitting some of these themes that were deep in sort of the Protestant way of doing empire. And then you've got Catholics in the room who don't know what to do with their Pope necessarily, but want to figure that out. And now we have sort of this reemergence of an Orthodox vision. But of course, you know, Orthodox, Orthodox empires, you know, they basically, they had to deal with Islam. They had to deal with communism. And now they're sort of out there. And of course, in some ways, Putin, how, what on earth, what on earth game is Putin running religiously? That's, I have no idea, but we're now at this end of the world. We're in this liminal phase where hierarchies are just completely disrupted. And the, there's the question of, okay, civilizational Christianity, how does that look? How is it formed? And then I, then your speech, you come in and you bring in, I, I thought, I don't know if I don't, I haven't heard John, I haven't heard John Verveke talk about it, but I mean, John's project of Neoplatonism is super interesting in this because of course, some of the listening to your speech in the room, it fit perfectly. People watching it on YouTube, there's the dislocation because when they watch your speech from the art conference on YouTube, it's not set in that room. And so the elephants that you were talking about and what you did in that speech doesn't fully translate on YouTube, but I don't know. So there's a whole bunch of things to throw at you, Jonathan. And maybe we can start with why you mentioned the emperor and what on earth you mean by that in this kind of crazy end of the world moment. Yeah. Well, I think that what I was trying to point to in terms of the idea of the emperor was not necessarily the, the emperor per se, but that uh, sometimes people have this weird idea that, like you said, talk about civilizational Christianity and have this idea that there were just these Christian like empires or Christian kingdoms that were completely homogenous, but that's not true. Uh, you know, and then there, there are ways in which America has been able to deal with the question of freedom of religion um, and to have the, the government just basically protect people within their faith, which is actually has a long history in, in Christian history. And that's actually one of the roles that the emperor would have played, which is that the emperor, even even starting with Constantine, because Constantine, when you say Constantine was between the pagans and the Christians, that's not as all he was. He was between the Arians, between the Orthodox 
and the pagans. Yes. And his son was was uh, was Aryan. And so even within his own family, he had this problem of dealing with trying to have a united kingdom, a united empire that that was have was capable of managing uh, some diversity of religious thought within it. Okay, and so this is a problem that you can see happening all through the history of Christianity, and it has a light and a dark side. So there are moments when the emperor tries to push for homogeneity, and you can see that happening around the time that Islam comes about, which is that one of the reasons why the uh, the Copts and the, the non-Chalcedonians, one of the reasons why Islam took over that space really fast was because the, the, the non-Chalcedonians thought, well, you know what, maybe it's better to have a, a completely foreign power that is going to uh, allow us to practice our Christianity rather than have an emperor that is trying to constantly impose orthodoxy on Chalcedonian Christianity on non-Chalcedonians. And so what I was trying to point to is that it is there is a long tradition within Christianity that the state has the capacity to, to, to create the proper environment for which people can exist with some multiplicity of religious, of religious uh, belief within it. Now, I don't believe that it is a good idea to have a just exploded anything goes any type of religion you know can can kind of exist because then that leads to a kind of madness but i also i think that the idea of a completely homogenous uh empire with a or or country with one single religious faith and everything is something which is um i believe too much to ask for and not only too much to ask for but we look at the places where that happened and where that was uh, promulgated, that's where you end up with, we know the story. That's where we end up with the, with the witch burnings. That's when you end up with the uh, kind of weird, fantastical demonization of difference within those places. Uh, and you see that happening in the state churches at the Reformation, right? Where that's where all, a lot of the, a lot of the witch trials take place. You see it happening, you know, in the way in which the, you know, the, the, for example, the, the King Philip, you know, tried to, you know, how can I say that? How the, the emperor tries, Philip the Fair tries to make the Catholic Church just a servant of state and tries to make it like something that will serve the unity of the state. And that turns into chaos. That turns into, so I don't have like an actual say, this is what we should do. But what I'm trying to help people understand is that this is something that has a long tradition and I think is reflected to some extent in the in the American world where there is this capacity for the state to to mediate some difference within religious uh, religion. And so a, a good example, even within, let's say, even even in France, let's say, uh, or in northern Europe, where there was more homogeneity, there was also there were always Jews. And so so even though we didn't permit uh, non-Christian, other Christian sects to exist, let's say in some strong Catholic countries, the Jews always had the protection of the king uh, and the protection of the Pope, by the way. A lot of people, it's weird how people think that the Pope persecuted Jews. It's like I, most of the time the Pope actually protected Jews from, from, from local persecution and local mobs. And it's the same with the king. The king tended to protect Jews against the, the mobs and everything. Sadly, that was not always the case. Sometimes they also uh, ex expelled them. But 
I don't know if you see what I, what I was trying to, to bring up, which is that the state can play a role in mitigating that question. I think that's why I, I, I very much thought that's what you were talking about, because of that long history and often, you know, the I mean, the history of the Jews in Europe is obviously a very interesting and mixed history. And of course, the Protestants, a la Martin Luther, you know, don't have their hands clean either in that. Um but there is there is in there an inherent tension because and and I think that's part of the way to understand this long history of I probably know the history in Latin Europe better than I know the history in Orthodox Europe um of the the constant struggle between um now we would frame it as between church and state but you know part of what develops obviously with Constantine is if you look in the Old Testament, you have theocracies where, um, where, where it's a you know theocracy is a very tight thing. Um, what develops then with empire is a looser thing, and so Constantine, on one hand, is seeing. I mean, he wants. He 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 grows into Christ partly, at least every, nobody begins with pure motivations, partly because like any Roman empire, he wants the, he knows that the, the success of his kingdom is dependent on the blessing of heaven. And so part of what Constantine wants is to get into alignment into, and of course, pagans wanted this too. You want alignment with the heavens. If you don't have alignment with the heavens, things on earth aren't going to work well. And you know, which is also but, true, by the way. No, which it is, is true. Which is just plain true. <laughs> which which is the tension here in and you know between let's say Chalcedonian non Chalcedonian Christians. Um, I mean, part of part of the tension between it's interesting that as as let's say I watch the development of the little corner grow, how often Trinitarian conversations come up because. And and you and I both sort of want to avoid them because for the most part, just directly debating the Trinity seldom goes anywhere. But these issues of the alignment of heaven and earth are continuing and church and emperor are always negotiating those alignments. And let's say how much fringe is tolerable and all of the stuff that you've really brought into my head in terms of center and fringe especially in this moment where okay we have this weird inversion we have these weird inversions going on now and and so and I think you're exactly right that usually the snapback of that tends to be you know authoritarianism it, it's like we as human beings can never get the mix right and we're usually off on one side too much or off on the other side too much. And now we're in a position civilizationally where we, 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 with secularism, we sort of put this veil over Christianity. That's sort of what happened in the American experiment. Where it's like, we're all these different Protestants. We have some Quakers and some Jews, but you know, the Catholics, we kind of held that bay because we, you know, until past 70 years, we said, well, we don't want Catholics among us, but okay, the Catholics are okay now and the Jews are okay now. And so we had this veil over Christianity. We said, oh, this isn't Christian. This is just normal, which is sort of the complete 
that that's basically what happens when you become a convert is that now you see the world through those eyes and and now that whole regime of secularity is coming apart worldwide in islam you know the you know when the caliphate fell after the first world war the the portions of islam that arose to save it were these islamist factions that were fundamentalist um you know, now in orthodoxy, it seems, and again, I know very little about it, but it seems we're in, again, sort of a a returning moment where, um, you know, okay, so let's have an Islamic ruler, and so we can, we can achieve a degree of pluralism and we'll stop fighting amongst ourselves, and, but then, of course, that Islam continued to sort of become more and more and more people begin to say oh if i'm muslim i don't have to pay this tax and you know on and on that history went and now we have this resurgence of okay so the agia sophia is now a mosque again not a museum that is such a telling moment civilizationally and so we're we're entering into this phase now where with hinduism in india with islam all around the world who on earth knows what is happening in china um, if the church doesn't sort of win that fight. But now in the West, we're sort of in this moment of what are we going to do? It's it's probably not going to be Catholic again. The Orthodox, I mean, Richard, Richard on, on one of your live streams, I haven't clipped it, basically says, what a few hundred years once the Orthodox take over America. I thought, oh, that'll that's <laughs> interesting. Um, and and I know, I mean, I, I have other Orthodox people that tell me that too. But we're in this moment where, okay, the, the the sheet is off secularity, and we're like, the Christians want to reemerge. And at the same time, you know, I'm really curious about your thoughts about Catholic Quebec, because your family, I mean, this is your history, hmm. your family history. and And Quebec is in some ways a tiny little microcosm of this entire transition. Yeah. Well, Quebec is, um, so, you know, I, one of the reasons why I, I talk about the things that I talk about is that I, I, I don't have a political hope, to be honest. Like, I don't think that the hope is in politics. And I don't think that fantasies of a Christian emperor are anything but fantasies. Like, this is not, this is not something that, and even if, even if, the the miracle of a christian leader could happen who knows it's like you have no control over that you have no so what why are you fantasizing about it anyways like why are you even talking about geopolitics as if you had any capacity to change any of the elements that are there so i mean i'm not saying there isn't a, some there's use in understanding what's happening and i think that that's important there's use in also knowing the history and knowing why we're here and knowing the place we are in the story, I think, is very useful, but um, that's why I never—that's why I never point to a political solution because I don't think there is one. I think that the solution is a solution of gathering the seed, right? The solution is a solution of 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 building an ark, you know, and 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 bringing the the just together. Like that's the solution that I see happening. It's like I think that. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. We're not going to turn the tide back. Uh, 
And and the best thing, but I do believe, like the way that Richard talks, I know it sounds ridiculous, but is to say that if the pattern of Christ is true, it won't go away. It can't. And so it can come into trouble. It can come into, you know, it's like the disciples when they saw Christ getting nailed to that cross, it's like it things look pretty dire. Things look like this isn't gonna, this is over, folks. Like this, we're done, you know. But the pattern, I think, because I do believe the pattern to be true, I think that it will return and that the best place to plant the seed so that it comes back up is in your heart, right? Like it sounds tacky, but what I mean is that the transformation of yourself and the transformation of the immediate people around you, and that is the thing that you can do all the time that will produce fruit in the future. And so that's what I've been from the very beginning. That is what I have been uh, calling for. Like, it's weird people. And I kind of. Like this, what's going on now and like everybody, everybody except for one person, you know, noticing that the enlightenment's done, like it's been it's, it's over right now. The, the principalities are shining again. People are noticing agency. People are noticing that that they are subject to, to, to things that they cannot control and that is acting in them and through them. Um, and so if you look at the very first talk that I gave with Jordan Peterson, I call it the resurrection of Logos. I was talking about that at the outset, right at the beginning. I said, this is happening, folks. You... This is you can't stop it anymore. It's already the 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 signs that this is coming are already there, and this is a very dangerous moment because it will lead exactly to the things that you that you're afraid of. It will lead to nationalisms. It will lead to religious nationalisms. It will lead to you know kind of Islamic nationalism. All of these things are going to be part of what's going on. It's also going to lead to crazy AI gods and to all this stuff that we're seeing, you know? So the question is, what can you do in that, in that, in those times, right? And that you do what you can always do, which is what Christ calls you to do. That's what you can do. And that's the thing that has the most reality to it. And it's the thing, that's one of the reasons why I like Jordan Peterson from the outset is because I saw right away when he said, clean your room, I knew what he meant. Like I knew that he meant the only place to start is, is with yourself. And and it's it's not to deny that it won't have repercussions going up, um, but that we believe, I think, at least as an Orthodox Christian, I believe that the conversion of Constantine is a fruit of the of the martyrdom of early Christians, right? It's a fruit of the sacrifice and the true life that Christians led, which which led secretly and in a very mysterious way to a social transformation. So the social transformation. The Christian empire, whatever you want to call it, or the Christian nation is a fruit of something. It's not the cause of something. You can't have a Christian nation with empty hearts. If you do that, like you said, then it then it turns into basically kind of pharisaic uh, situation, the, the type of thing that Christ was criticizing in, in his life. Um, but 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 so it's not to it's not to say that there's no such thing as civilizational Christianity. There is. We saw it. We know what it looks like when it happens. But the idea that you're going to artificially construct that 
in order to get the result that you want, which is not to be closer to Christ, which is not to be the kingdom of God, but it is to impose some, some like social order that uh, that that allies with your ethnic ethnic group or your ideological group or whatever, then that's not going to work. If you if you try to weaponize Christianity to some other goal, it will always be perverted, you know. No, and, and you and I are in complete agreement on that. And you know, as I so I'm working through the gospel of Mark now, you know, we have you know, the, the Christian cycle has returned again. And so now I'm back in the gospels and I'm working through the gospel of Mark. And I think that's, I mean, that that's abundantly clear in the gospel of, of Jesus, because Jesus, everyone expects Jesus fundamentally, this is what I continue to have debates with, with my Jewish friends. Jesus fundamentally alters the image of Messiahship that, the messiahs that people were looking for were the Maccabees, were David, were uh, Simon, you know, Bar Kokhba, were all of these attempts to do exactly like you say. We are going to, we are going to make, we are going to make the world right again through political power, and Jesus completely undermines that in everything that he does. Now, the difficulties, of course, arise when. Christianity in some ways always struggles with winning in this world in a very strange way. Yeah. But look at let, let me just say something about Jesus and that question because it's I remember when I was a kid people people said that and also in the context in which I I grew up they would say that Jesus surprised people, right? Because he didn't become the Messiah that they expected, which is he didn't conquer Rome, he didn't take off the you know uh conquer the people that were oppressing the the Jews at the time and the answer is yes he did what are you talking about it took 300 years but he did he did exactly that he conquered Rome I mean I, I agree completely that's agree a crazy completely. crazy thing and he did it without violence ultimately he did it he did it through inner transformation to a point where the fruits were so obvious that even the even the the the, the elites were kind of Okay, what do we do now? Like, well, how do we how do we deal with this? Because it the, this is coming. It's like a ground up transformation from the poor and the slaves up into the higher echelons, uh, and it's not. But it's not revolutionary. It's not subversive in any way. The Christians followed Roman law. They were good citizens. They did all these things. They weren't trying to take over political power. So it's a it's a transformation from from the ground up. But that is not a revolution. Right. And I agree with you a hundred percent. And you can see the pattern in Daniel, because. Because you have this irony with Daniel that mm. he is at one hand, at one time, he is he has probably been become a eunuch. He is a slave to these pagan emperors who are seen in the book of Daniel to be bloodthirsty, mindless tyrants on one hand. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar has this interesting thing. He is at once the best citizen of the empire, but he is also never fully, um, never fully is never fully owned by the emperor and and this the book of daniel portrays that perfectly and yeah, that he, then he becomes... transforms the emperor from through his testimony right he transforms the emperor through being to being an example that the emperor admires right and right. he transforms it from the inside and by the way that is also the that's the story of esther at the same time yep it's like the the esther is able to change the king's allegiance change the king's perception change his direction 
She converts him for all intents and purposes, although it's not a religious conversion per se, but she transforms his intelligence. Let's use the, the, the Pauline word through, uh, through a kind of humble approach to the king and a, and a, a different type of transformation. Yes. No, I uh, 100% agree. It's also interesting in Daniel that what we see with Daniel is this constant pattern of rising and falling. Because Daniel repeatedly is made sort of second in command of the kingdom. And then when the story turns around again, we find him just one of the other magi again. And, and you even see that with Esther, because in a sense, the, the pagan potentate has a limited, you know, is basically limited in that they're, they're always over here. They're always, oh, I've got a new favorite besides Esther right now. And, you know, there's another new hottie. And so you, you find this rising and falling. And I think in some ways, you see this civilizationally with, with Christianity as well, that there's a cycle that these things sort of rise and fall and rise and fall. And, and I, I think actually that secularity was part of that pattern because I think part of what secularity did was secularity sort of smuggled, I think, again, this is part of Tom Holland's thesis, secularity smuggled Jesus in to even someone like Sam Harris who doesn't realize the Jesus within within his systems. Yeah. And so you have Jesus within all of these systems, but now we're at this moment where um, it, it's almost like it gets to the top. And then my thinking is that actually, and I think we see this, I think we see Jesus saying this in many different ways in his ministry, that this particular dispensation of the world, until the consummation and the renewal of heaven and earth, this particular dispensation in the world can only basically contain so much of what Jesus has to bring. And then it's in the second coming in the you know, in the book of Revelation, where Jesus brings a new heaven and a new earth, that that next new heaven and earth will be able to much more fully contain Christ. But part of what we keep bumping into with these cycles are the limits that um, that the the Christian emperor gets to a point where even the Christians within the empire say, and, and so we see this cycling through history, and and I think. You know, part of the moment that we're at now with this inversion is one of these moments where um, Protestant waspy modernity sort of reached its limit, and now there's going to be a cycle again, and it's going to be messy. But my thinking is that we will see again an, another rebirth cycle. But um, I mean, these cycles are far longer than any of our lives. So, yeah. well, there there are these. You know there are these eschatological uh, patterns that you see in in the tradition. You know that you know. So we talked about Richard Rule and I. We talked about something called the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius, which was one of the main, very important apocalyptic texts in the Byzantine Empire, uh, and it reflects a lot of different uh, apo apocalyptic texts of the time, and they they always perceive a last moment. Right. And so it's like this idea that the Christian empire, the Christian world was almost gone. And then out of Ethiopia, like rises up this last Christian empire or the last Christian moment. And then there's a 
then there's the final battle or something, you know, some some kind of version like that. Um, and so, but it's a, it's ambiguous. The whole thing is ambiguous. Christ, <laughs> it's like Christ knew this, and this the, it's one of the reasons why Christ sets up the world the way he sets it up in the in the gospel. You know, Christ understood. It seems I, that's the way that I understand it. Christ understood that in setting up his body in the world as a ecclesia, as a communion, that that had inherent dangers in it and that that would lead to, actually lead to Antichrist, that it was part of the, Antichrist is part of the equation. It's like it's part of the story, as if Christ knows that setting up, setting up the body creates a danger and a problem that plays itself out kind of over and over. And it is, and it is in some ways the antichrist issue of Christianity, and you know it's like that to me explains why Christ talks to Saint Peter the way he talks to Saint Peter, hmm. why he both sets him up as the stone on the rock on which he's building his church, and then turns around and says, "You opponent, like get behind me, opponent, get behind me, Satan, get behind me, you who opposes me." It's like he knew and the same with judas it's the same story with judas it's like he the christ story encompasses its own betrayal christ chose his betrayer christ, christ chose that which would turn against him but that he knew somehow that the fact that christianity would that christians would destroy the world ultimately right i i've said this several times it's like we're the atheists folks Right, it's us. It's it's the Christians who became the atheists. It's the Christian and the Jews. It's the Christian and the Jews who became the atheists, who became the secularists, who created the modern state, the modern warfare, the modern like th this whole thing, which is spiraling out of control, is is a is a fruit of the Christian world. And you could say that it's a fruit as Antichrist. That's possible, and it's probably true, but it's also part of the story. It's like it's it's how it happens. It's like Jesus chose those that would crucify him. Jesus chose those that would betray him. Chose that those that would deny him. They're the ones that Christ chose them, because he kind of he seemed to have understood that these that these is this is how it's going to play out, and he wants to reassure us that that no oh, no this has to happen, folks. Right? Evil has to happen. Scandal has to happen. Doesn't excuse the people by whom it happens, but it just. It's part of how things are going to play out. Um, so, so I think it's dangerous. It's dangerous, for example, in the moment when when Christ is being brought to the garden and is being betrayed and is being brought to the cross, that we take our sword out and we're like, we're gonna, we want to cut off that Roman's ear. It's like, yeah, it seems that Jesus knew all of this was going to happen, you know. And so, doesn't mean we run away. That's not what Christ wanted either, but it, you know, it's like we should stay awake, you know, and stay in prayer and stay awake. It's like if you read the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, it's all there. Oh, that's fascinating. Because he tells them to bring swords. I know then... that's the weirdest part of the whole story, man. <laughs> that seems to be what with Jesus and and Peter, the whole relationship between Jesus and Peter, very very fascinating, and also like how. The mysterious aspect of Peter, I've been thinking about Peter so much recently. The mysterious aspect of Peter, like 
there seems to be like a really an image of the restoration in Peter, like an image of a very mysterious restoration. Because he says to Peter, it's like Peter is the only person he calls Satan in the gospel. Yes, yes. Right. It's Peter. He's the right. one he calls Satan. Right. It's like not that's Pilate, pretty... not Herod, exactly. not Tiberius. Peter. Peter, exactly. Not Judas. That's right. Not even that. No. So, 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 so just think about that for a moment. Okay. Uh, and then think about the final moment when Peter is on the boat. It's very disturbing what happens. First of all, he puts on his clothes, which is such a weird thing. Why does why do you put on your clothes to dive into the water? Right. And so I think this is referring, I think Christ is, I think this is really referring to to death. Like he's Peter's dying in that moment. He's going under. He's he he he's doing the whole the whole story of Peter is happening in that moment, right? Which is Peter wanted to walk on water. And he sank. And now Peter is jumping in. He's not walking on water. He's going under. He's like, yeah, he's yeah, going yeah, under. Yeah, yeah. On he, he uh, Consciously, he's diving in. He's going under. He's willing to die. That's what it's showing, I think, that he's willing to die. And that when he comes back up to see Christ, that's when Christ restores him and says, you are the shepherd now. And I think that, I think that it's a very... I think that that's the most powerful, it's such a powerful story. And it, I think it does point to, we kind of want to understand how restoration happens and how any form of Christian culture is going to happen. It's like in that moment with St. Peter. And Peter is also the one who wants to build booths on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, he wants to, he wants to, to he wants to fix, but the thing is that he will, like the thing, that's the thing about this story. It's so amazing. The story of, of 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 Jesus is just beyond belief, you know. And it's like he wants to build the church there on the mountain, and Christ is like, no. But then he says, like, you're going to build the church. So it's, yeah, it's a it, it, this. That's the kind of the duality of Christianity. So and the duality of Christianity is so interesting. It's so, it's there everywhere. Think about again when I said so. Jesus saves Rome, right? And so that's yep. amazing. Yep. He that's conquers a, and saves Rome at the yep. same time. But what's the beast in Revelation? The beast is Rome, folks. Any any Catholic and Orthodox who wants to deny that, it's like, just read the text. It's pretty clear that that's Rome. And so the Roman aspect, right, of Christianity is always there as both a vehicle for expansion, you could say, but as yeah. the danger the danger is 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 it's that's what the danger is. It's always Rome that's the danger. It doesn't mean that Rome is bad in itself. It doesn't mean that Rome can be conquered and saved. But the danger of Rome is always present in the church. Well, and that's why, you know, I've been, you know, as a preacher, I read, I'm always in the Gospels. I mean, part of what the beauty of at least doing even my own weird way of a liturgical calendar, you 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 keep coming back in the cycle and you're forced to keep going back over these stories that you've read so many times. And it, it seems to me again that like there's there's this Jesus keeps saying one way or another that this world can only contain so much. And I think Lewis points to that with his argument from desire that something within us desires more 
than what this world and this life is capable of. And we are in fact made for more. Mm. And, and that leaks out in all these different ways, but that, I mean, you, you just said it very well. You, there's these weird things like, and I think you're exactly right. I, I've often looked at Peter and Judas and sort of putting the two together because we don't know, we don't know exactly what was behind Judas. But again, it seemed to me a likely candidate is that Judas was really wanting Jesus to fulfill the, you know, the let's say the Maccabean messianic trajectory. And when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, on, on one hand, there's the triumphal ent entry, which sort of stimulates everyone to imagine, oh, it's happening. Mm -hmm. He's going to march and he's going to clean out the Antonia fortress. It's going to start now and... And then Jesus, <laughs> Jesus just will not play that script. And I and I suspect that's probably part of what made Judas say, you know, screw this. You know, I'm going to cash in and get out. And, and yeah, but and Jesus he, sends him to do it. Yes, yes. Jesus I, tells I, him to do it. Jesus, is like, go. It's a, this is it. This is the time. Do it. I mean, it's 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 astounding. And. And 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 it's in, comparing Peter and Judas is very helpful and very useful because in some ways you see the difference uh, between because you could say that Judas after what happened he had a semi repentance right yes. he didn't yes. have a full repentance but he had a, a movement towards repentance when he went and and uh, you know and tried to 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 give the money back and it's like you know they don't want it or whatever. Uh, but but the idea is that he can't he didn't he he ended up killing himself like he didn't trust the message he didn't see he didn't have he didn't trust that this would he didn't even bring leave itself to the possibility that he could come up to Christ and be forgiven and he took it upon himself and so that's a, that's a, to me it is an interesting way of comparing the two yeah where You've got the symbolic world conference coming up. I'm 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 probably not going. Um, oh, you're not coming? I was hoping you come. <laughs> I, I get I get I get four I get four weeks away. That's what my council gives me. That's my council true. Gives That's four true. Weeks I forget away. that you're a pastor, a full time pastor. <laughs> um, what what's 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 talk to me about the talk to me about this symbolic world project. Um, and the symbolic world movement. Um, where do you, where do you, because this fits in to a certain degree, because I mean, part of the reason I wanted to ask you about civilizational Christianity is I think both of us have, I think as you well articulated, both of us have mostly, mostly focused on the individual, mostly focused on helping individuals, you know, find a church, get into a church, clean your room. Because you're exactly right. This is this is the foundation where all of this stuff builds up from. But we also need we also need communities. And and as we've always seen within the church, that there's 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 all these different levels. And so the church is sort of up here. Um, but then we need these little enclaves within it and special interest groups and stuff. So talk to me about the symbolic world and and where how you think that's developing and and where would you like to see that thing go? And what part do you play in it? What part do I play in it? Uh, 
it, it's a it i think your question is a, is a good question because in some ways it's an for me it's always been a little difficult that question and so i've i have acted deliberately in ways to prevent the symbolic world from becoming a community and and not because i don't like the people that i've encountered around that or that i think they're amazing i do think that but i think that i i did see at the outset the danger that this would become a thing in itself that it would become some like not a cult but a cult like right like some some like followers of jonathan or followers followers of Mathieu or whatever and that they would develop their own little like world uh and so i i feel like that's a danger that's always around so the, the question is how do you find the balance between on the one hand getting people excited about the ideas and the possibilities that i think that this approach to meaning is offering because obviously I, if i'm doing it is because i do believe that that this approach to meaning is really is a way to bridge some secular the secular world and the and the christian world it can revive the way people engage with scripture with stories and everything so finding the balance between getting people kind of excited and motivated and seeing the value of it and seeing that they're not alone and that there are other people that are thinking that way and so feeling like this is a this is something worth putting their energy into while avoiding the more dangerous kind of cult-like aspects of, of of a group so i don't know if i'm succeeding but i would say that that's the that's always the line that i'm trying to to uh to play on and i see the symbolic world in some ways mostly as a school of thought more than as a community um but there always will be i mean even in, in any school of thought there'll be some communal aspects to it some community aspects to it and i think that's that's fine but uh but i'm a little cautious about it becoming too much. So let's say we do the summit, you know, in some ways the summit to me is a way for the people that are developing this way of thinking and developing this approach to reality to recognize each other and be able to, to, to kind of see who's there, who's part of this, who's, who's, who's engaged in this, this way of thinking so that it becomes more of a movement in that sense so that it, it has a, has a has a weight and it has a way of people recognize each other and maybe even collaborating and and applying it to different aspects of their life. So that's really the the hope for the summit. How did how did the idea of a summit arise? That was that was Neil DeGrade's idea. It was oh really? Like, yeah, yeah. It was Neil DeGrade's idea. Well, people have been asking for it for uh for a while, like just kind of vaguely asking for it, but then there was COVID and there's all this stuff. And yeah. then Neil came to me and he said, look, I think it's time we should we should do this. And, and, and I kind of hesitated and I was like, I don't know. And then he coaxed me, you know how he coaxed me? He coaxed me by saying that his band would play at the, the summit. <laughs> he, said, he said, if you do it, Dirt for Robbins will play. And I was like, I'm sold. All right, I'll do it. Cause I, I really like their music and, and I, I would love to see them uh, play. So that, that's kind of how it started. And, um, and then he's been really helpful. He's been super helpful and really involved in, he helped me find the company that's managing it. He he kind of helped me develop the schedule, choose the speakers. He's been super super involved and super helpful. I got I got to one of the beautiful things for me. The there are a lot of interesting things about Arc, but getting to meet some of these people, getting to meet Neil and spending some time with him that was that was so much fun. That was so much fun. I loved 
I mean, you had a, there was this little group of artists that sort of kept to themselves because again, that first day they're like, where what are, are we? Doing? Why am I here? What have I gotten myself into? But um, that was- Yeah, that's what, that was kind of my job was to get artists to come to ARC. You know, that's what they asked me to do in terms of the invitational part. And so, you know, I got all these people to come. Um, and it, it was hard actually to get people to come, by the way, because yes. a lot of people- for artists, it's dangerous to put yourself out there in a politically looking uh, situation. So the people that came, I really hats off to them and I really appreciate that they came. Hopefully next time after they've seen what it is and kind of what, what's going on, there'll be more more people that will be willing to to come and create that that network. So well, I and again, I you know, I felt super out of place, at least initially. Um, I love the networking aspect of it. Um, because I, I too have to the frustration of some people, you know, I, I really try to keep politics at arm's length, hmm. um, because it just, it's just hard. It's just hard to accomplish a lot of what I want to accomplish if, if the political gets too in there. But I think the, you know, the second and the third day, um, sort of helped, I think, balance the conference and, and, I think it was, a, I mean, to get that group of people in a room for three days and get mostly attention mm. is, is I think, a, a real accomplishment. Now, they, they talked about February of 2025. Is that going to be in London again, do you know? Or are they planning on having it in different places? No. So the, the plan now is to have the big, it'll, they'll, they'll kind of split it up into big the big R conference, which will probably always be in London. And then probably we're looking at regional art conferences. Oh, really? So we're, we're already looking at one in Australia and one in a, in the U.S. But nothing is formal yet, but that's kind of the idea. So the idea would be that we have a big one in 2025, and then in 2024, we have a few regional uh, things. They're thinking maybe Central Europe, uh, one in, in Australia, one in, uh, in the U.S. But obviously that hasn't that hasn't uh, materialized it, but that's the idea. That's why at first too, I was like, why are they putting it so far away? And I, and then I, then I, in discussion, I realized that's what they're doing. Yeah. Do you think, um, have you gotten a chance to get to know some of the other leaders of this thing? I've obviously, you know, Jordan. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I got to know Philippa obviously and her team The. uh, and, you know, Jordan and then some of the other people, Gudrun, some of the people that are on the board. There's some people on the board that are more involved. Some are less involved, obviously. Some people on the board I never actually met because they were kind of just nominally on the board. So, uh, you know, I, I I think I mentioned this before. I think one of the things that really convinced me of ARC was to realize that how a lot, most 95% of the people involved are are Christians and are, yeah. and are kind of committed Christians and that it's not... It's not first, and although you know we have a, we have a range of political opinion from yeah. kind of libertarian to classical liberal to more more conservative. Uh, one of the things that unites a lot of the people together is that that desire to not to be explicitly Christian in the conference, but that I know that I kind of trust their intentions at the outset, and that uh, in Philippa especially, she's amazing. Yeah. Philippa is yeah. just an amazing person, and that that is, and her team are amazing. Like all the people that work for ARC are just are wonderful, and 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 that that was one of the reasons why I decided to 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 be part of it was more people 
then because I, I'm not a polit political person. I mean, you've known me now for several years. So it was, it was kind of like weird and like, okay, what am I doing here? This is, I'm surrounded by like rich people and, 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 you know, leaders and former prime ministers and whatever. Um, but it was the, it was the quality of the people that kept me there. So. Your talk with Russell Brand, is that coming to your channel? I don't think so. I don't know. I should ask him. I, I haven't asked him. Maybe we could put it up on my channel. Yeah. Maybe he'd agree because of the rumble problem. Yeah, maybe I could. Yeah, I, I think it would be good because I, I only saw it because somebody put sort of a bootleg copy up on YouTube. I don't know if it's been taken down yet, but um, I when I first saw it, I thought, oh, this will be interesting because I Russell Brand is such an interesting guy and he's so... I don't know how to describe. How would you describe what what category can you put Russell Brand in? <laughs> I mean, I think he's a, I think that he's an exuberant person, and he's extremely charismatic. He's a charismatic, exuberant person that also happens to be very, very sharp. He's yes. very, he's a bright guy. Yeah. Um, but then that comes together, which is that he knows that he's a. Uh, he knows that he that he's charming. He knows that he's that he's convincing. He knows that he's funny and like and so it's like all of that kind of gets mixed up together in his in his approach and his personality. He also happens to be extremely anti authority or authority. Like he seems to be almost like an anarchist in his in his uh, vision. Um, so you know, it's really. I was surprised as anybody when he wanted to talk to me. I mean, it's Jordan's doing, obviously. It's yeah. not, that's not a mystery. <laughs> you know, Jordan keeps saying this guy, Jonathan Peugeot, this guy, Jonathan Peugeot. And he's finally like, hey, maybe I should talk to this guy, Jonathan Peugeot. Um, but it was interesting. I don't know what you thought of the conversation. I thought that at the outset, it was kind of like, eh, it wasn't, it was. And then it kind of gelled towards the end things. Actually, when I was talking about fairy tales, I felt like he was more, he kind of, now he kind of got what I was trying to yeah. talk about. Right. Yeah. Well, and it, it's, you know, some of your conversations with your conversation with rationality rules, your conversation with Adam friended. I mean, part of it's hard for to say this modernity sort of tries modernity presents the world as flat. And the yeah. idea is that anybody can understand anybody else. And that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. You know, by the way, the, I did a conversation with uh cosmic skeptic, that guy. Oh, did you? Yeah. And he's it's, I, he's going to put it out. And uh, I actually it's weird because I actually he wrote me and asked me to do it. And I said, no. And I said, I said, no, I said, I said, I, I you know, I looked at the people he talks to, you know, the usual suspects, either Christian apologetic types or, yeah. you know, Bart Ehrman types and all yeah. that stuff. And I said, look, you're better off with those guys. Really, I'm a different animal. Uh, but he kind of insisted. And then I met him in London. He was at ARC, by the way. Oh, I, met okay. him, I met him at ARC and he kind of said, look, I think we could have a conversation. So I, I did. And it turned out actually very friendly, fine conversation. And I think he was, he, I think he was also, he was too nice to me. Like he, he was ended up being too nice to me, I think. Yeah. But yeah. hopefully people will like it. it. We ended up talking about beauty and art and the relationship between atheism and ugliness in some ways. Yeah. And, and, and him trying to work that out. Like, why is the modern world so ugly? And is that related to atheism? And the answer is yes. Uh, obviously. <laughs> well, and that, you know, I, I want to go back to Russell Brand, but I mean, yeah, this, somebody recently asked me, 
actually people have been asking me this for a long time. Is there a place in Protestantism for artists, visual artists? And I, I have a hard time saying yes to that because from what I've seen, it, it's, it's, I don't know. It, I, I don't know. I don't know yeah. your thoughts on that because. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that, uh, I think that it was one of the reasons why I became Orthodox to yeah. some extent. And and it was one of the reasons just because what I felt or what I, my perception of, of the Protestant question in terms of visual art was that it's not that they're overtly hostile to the existence of images in a secular space, let's say, but they don't have a theological justification for their existence. And so, and and that's the same. Like some churches actually do have images in them, but those are kind of like accidents because there's no theological justification for them. So because of that, there's this weird ambiguity and malaise about it. Well, you'll have you know you'll have artists that are artists in the church, like oh maybe we could have a show at the church, you know, and then they'll like put it in the vestibule or whatever, and they try to figure out a way to do this, but it's all it's all awkward because because there there's no theology of the image um and so so i think that that is definitely a a problem and there's also uh, an exacerbation of the difference between the secular and the sacred space uh in the in the in the in the reformation and the the let's say the consequences of the reformation so most reformation countries ended up uh advocating for secular subjects um, so you end up having pictures of the king, you end up having landscape gets developed in Protestant countries a lot. And then also genre scenes, you know, like everyday life and all this stuff now. Uh, but that is also a problem, right? It's a problem like theologically, because at some point what happens is that you're surrounded by secular images and those are forming your mind, but you don't have sacred images. And so you're being formed, your visual understanding and your kind of visual relationships are being formed by, by secular images, uh, but not by sacred images. And so in in you can imagine that in in Israel, there was a, like I don't I, I'm trying to figure out like how it was let's say in Israel and how they dealt with that question. It was probably not as pervasive as for us because for us images are ubiquitous; they're everywhere. Right. So our our visual our visual um, structures are formed by and so and then what I think happened by the way this is I'm pushing here a little bit but I think that one of the things that happened is because in some re in some ways because the Protestant world kind of did away with liturgy slowly it kind of evacuated the space of form whether visual whether liturgical or whatever I think that that is in some ways what led to a kind of forgetting at some point hmm. and that and so then the secular imagery and the secular world just kind of started to leak right back into the church and mm -hmm. then you end up with with like entertainment churches you end up with concert halls and entertainment forums and people don't even realize that that's what's going on they don't really realize that there's a coherence to the stadium sitting that stadium sitting has a has a reason and that it it, it is passive entertainment mode you know and that the, the the light shows the smoke screen like all the stuff that will you know that 
that uh, characterizes the, the the popular modern uh, megachurches is a is not also not theologically justified. It there's like it's like an ambiguity, a weird, awkward ambiguity that exists in that space. So I've been boy, this the Protestant when I when I think about Protestantism, well, well, back to the Hebrews. I mean, one of the things that it's funny because as biblicistic as Protestants can be, and as iconoclastic, one of the things that sort of gets papered over is that there was a lot of imagery in the tabernacle and the temple. Yeah. I mean, you had these, you had these giant statues of seraphim in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. It's yeah, and you had right the, there in the text. Yeah. And in the temple, you had the bulls that were yep. in the, the temple, and you had yep. You know, so you had you had and you had the images of the cherub stitched into the into the uh, the different veils and different curtains and stuff. So, and the cherub had a had a human face. When, it when might it, have been covered. It might have been covered. I don't know. Yeah, like yeah. maybe it was covered. It's possible. Well, one of the things I think that happens with Protestantism is that there's sort of this eschatological. There's an attempt at eschatological realization that we're we're going to we're going to do away with the sacred by um infusing everything with the sacred. I mean that's the movement in Protestant theology yeah. where this happens. And this then gets worked out in it. The difficulty is and I think this is actually part of the reason why the enlightenment is passing away and why the conversations with Peterson and Verveke, cognitive science and psychology is again the frame problem. You have combinatorial explosiveness. You need you need to sort of you need to have a frame to collapse too big of a world into a even a visible world that we can maintain. Which is why in Protestantism, in some ways, the sacred is the sacred is immanentized and then implicitly banished. Which means that it will come back out again, but in uncontrollable, sometimes chaotic fashions, which will eventually sort of, uh, which will dis which will destabilize systems. And I think yeah. that's one way of seeing what's happening. I think you're right. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and I think that it's really is in some ways, it's a, it's a difficulty in understanding what Christian hierarchy is it, because there's a, I, and it's, you can understand it. There's a problem in Christian hierarchy which is that the the thing that the, the one that is the highest in the Christian church is the one that's hung on a cross. And so, okay, how does that work? Like, how is he the king of the Jews? Why is it that he gets that appellation? And, and so because of that, there's this, there's a difficulty in kind of understanding how Christian hierarchy works. And there's a tendency, I think, and there's a, there's a tendency to want to eradicate hierarchy. Uh, you know, and you can say, you know, Christ tears the veil of the temple, right? You've heard all the arguments, like the veil of the temple is torn and therefore, you know, it means that everything is flat now. Like everything is is like that. Um, but what's interesting is that if you look in the book of Revelation, which is the final image, you actually have an image of Christian hierarchy and it shows you what that image looks like. A lot of people think that, that Christian worship is based on the Old Testament. It's not based on the Old Testament. Traditional Christian worship is based on the book of Revelation. That's where you get the image. 
And one of the things that happens, for example, is that the, the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest place is replaced with the, with the uh, altar. And so the outside thing becomes the inner thing, the highest thing. And there's a, a joining of the outside thing, which is this altar in which they offered sacrifice in the court, and the inner thing, the secret, the secret place where the glory of God descends, those get fused into one place. And that becomes the top of the hierarchy in the Christian church. And so meditating on those, on the way that Christians ended up uh, basing their worship on the book of Revelation as the eschatological expression of what hierarchy is meant to be and the heavenly Jerusalem, that's a way to kind of, I think that's a way that we can at least understand how hierarchy functions in a Christian world uh, and that it's never flat. It was never flat, even, even for the early Christians. Like there, there, there were aspects of there were aspects of it that were not hierarchical in the power authority way that we understand the 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 Roman let's say uh, authority, but the eschatological vision shows us there is a there's a procession of of that which is above and that which is below and how that connects together. But at the same time, Jesus <laughs> Jesus bought, brought equality into the world almost more than anyone else. You know, you have one master and you are all brothers. I mean, it's it's Jesus is doing both of these things at the same time. And we are, you know, we are just constantly trying to keep up because they're both, I mean, it is the this vision of, this vision of, you know, the, even the book of Revelation, you have, you know, the, the Revelation 6 image of all these nations and, you know, they're all one body. And it, it just keeps going this way the whole time. And yeah, they're two. They're, you're right that they're the boat, that both of them are happening at the same time. Yeah. And the mystery is also when Christ reveals that, you know, that that the least of you, right, the one that serves the others, he will be the highest, right? Right. Like that's and, how it. This is the secret of hierarchy, you know. And it and it's not a, it's not an upside down hierarchy like a revolution, like I mentioned before. Uh, but it is a transformation and a surprise in how hierarchy actually works, which is that the the one who sacrifices himself, he actually becomes the core of how things exist. Well, and you know, to swing this back to Russell Brand, and I thought the moment that you two found each other in that conversation was when he asked that question, you know, basically here, here's a guy who he's so smart. He's so charismatic. Um, he's so clever. He's so gifted. He basically, um, you know, he could sort of run the table in a way that a lot of men want to run the table money. He could get money attention. He could get attention women. Yeah. He could get women. And it destroyed him. Yeah, yeah. And he just had this. He just had this moment not too long ago where a lot of that destruction just, just sort of kept in. But that, of course, had been his story because he had to achieve sobriety. And then, you know, if you just look at, um, you know, I've I haven't watched a lot of him, but if you look at the tattoos on his arms, I mean, he's got Christ. He's got um, Buddha symbolism. Yeah. He's got. I mean, he's just he's, he's just he's all over the place. He's all over the place. And so, um, but at the same time, it's easy to dismiss him sort of because to say, oh, he's a, he's got no filter, 
no, he he had to develop a filter because he realized that in some ways he's 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 prototypical of where a lot of popular culture is at right now in a flat pluralistic world. Yeah. We can just absorb everything and we can use what we have in absorbing everything to get what we want. And his own story is that that leads to destruction. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good insight. And I, I mean, I don't know like where his, what his internal state is, but he definitely seems to be on a, a let's just say a journey that isn't over yet. No, you know? no. Well, which leads me to another big character. I mean, it's been so funny watching Jordan pull you into different things. Um, conversation. What's the guy's name? Muhammad. He, Oh, the Muhammad hijab conversation. Yes. Yes. (laughs) We haven't talked since then. Really? That's crazy. No, we, we really haven't, but it's, but Islam, I mean, so for me, you know, Islam is another thing that I've sort of just kind of kept at bay because I don't have to deal with Islam. And the question of Islam is a, I think a super complex question because it's not at all clear what Islam is. It, it, you know, on one hand, it's a, I mean, C.S. Lewis described Islam, Islam is submission, Paul. Islam means submission. Yeah, but submission to what? But submission to God, <laughs> you know. That's what yeah, but who is God that, you know, they are submitting to it? And I mean, because to me, Islam, well, it's, it, it's, so when, Part of the difficult about difficulty about talking about any religion or using a religious category is that it is just so broad because you can you can meet just absolutely wonderful Islamic people who um you know have virtue and character and you know and then you look at the religion. You always have this because you can't I mean how would you how would you judge orthodoxy i mean it's such a massive category yeah it's it the same problem with you know christianity it's such a massive category and these these categories are so massive they break down but they don't completely break down because they still they still do have power and formation power in people yeah. so yeah and allegiance allegiance power but that conversation was one of the most frustrating like to me moments in my life. And it's also frustrating even against myself in the sense that at some point I was like, why did I get roped into this? Like, what am I doing here? You know? And so you have to set the stage because people watch the conversation. They don't see the context of where we were. They don't understand that we were invited there. Jordan was invited there. Where was, fill it out a little bit. Right. So Jordan was invited there to come talk about the place of Jesus in Islam. That's where that's why Jordan was invited there. And 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 so Jordan said, Do you want to go to this thing? I'm supposed to talk about the place of Jesus in Islam. And I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting thing. Like, I'm willing to do that. Uh, and so he says, I'm gonna meet with this guy, Muhammad Hijab. And so I then I go to my hotel room and it's like the next morning I'm gonna go to this thing. I don't know who this guy is. And I look him up on YouTube, and all I see are videos of him like with masked men, like in the street, you know, marching and saying that he's gonna beat up these these Indian people or whatever. And it's like Pakistanis. I don't forget who it was. Like he, there was, it was like, he was a street 
character, like a street thug. Um, and I was like, what? what? What are we doing? Like, why are we going to meet this guy? So that was the first thing. So, but I already committed. So I'm like, okay, I'll go. So we go there. We're in the Islamic center, London Islamic center. We are in a mosque, right? In that During that conversation, we are in a mosque, okay? And we are sitting at the head of the mosque, right? Behind us is the place from which the Quran is and the prayers are said. In front of us are around 50, 60 men from the mosque. So now let me put you in that position and ask you, okay. And so now we're sitting there and we're supposed to talk about the place of Jesus in Islam. But what we're getting is someone attacking Jordan, then attacking Christianity, then attacking the Trinity. And what's going in the back of my head is, okay, so am I supposed to now fight you in a mosque surrounded by all these Muslim men and use the same kind of derogatory, insulting language that you're using? And all I could tell myself and put myself in the position is, I would never do that to you in a church, ever. Like, I would never invite you into a church yeah. under false pretense and then have you surrounded by Christians and then start attacking Islam in your face. Yeah. So the whole time I was like, this guy is a thug. Yeah. This guy is not serious. Yeah. And you can see if you watch my face in the interview, you can see yes. that I'm annoyed beyond belief, uh, you know, and then the whole time, all he was doing was proselytizing. He just, yeah. all he cared about was like, will you convert to Islam? And and not and it wasn't even about us. It was like, will you show my buddies that are there watching that you would convert to Islam? If I convinced you, would you convert to Islam? One of his questions was literally, if I could prove to you that Islam yeah. was true, would you convert to Islam? Yeah. What, kind of, what kind of nonsense, dishonest question is that? That is one of the most dishonest questions I've ever heard. And so it was very difficult to take this seriously and, and to engage because like, what am I going to engage? I'm going to start arguing with you over the Trinity in this, in this context. It just didn't make sense to me. So anyways. Well, I think that that gets at, you know, when the new Testament calls, um, you know, talks about a house of peace or a person of peace. I think that gets at it because there is, you know, deep within deep within the culture out of which the Bible, you know, in, in which the Bible is contextualized and the Bible has this, there's a deep culture of hospitality. And when you set something up like this, you are, I mean, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sort of story of Gibeah, these are all stories of hospitality and they extended no hospitality, yeah. which is. Yeah. And, and, and I'll be honest, like, let's be honest. It's not as if this has never happened. It's not as if Christians have never done this. Christians right. have done this. There are, you know, the probably know the stories of Christians inviting rabbis into debates where basically it was like, we're going to have a debate in the town hall, in the town with all these Christians. And basically your life is at stake. And if you, if you disagree with us, you know, and so it's like being in that, ex I mean, obviously I wasn't in the physical danger, but as soon as the, the conversation ended, people came right up to my face and started telling me I shouldn't have said that. They came right up to me and said, you, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have said that about, about him. And you don't understand what it's like to be a Muslim in, 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 in London. And we are uh, the victims and we are marginalized. And, and like several times, right up to the car, when I was at the car 
to like taking an Uber to leave the place. Yeah. You know, some man walked up to me and he said, that was inappropriate. You shouldn't have said that. It was like, talk about like just aggressive, you know, man, it's something. Wow. So I've, I'm curious from your point of view, I've, you know, I've, this is now the second time I've been to England and, um, it is it is different from America in terms of how multiculturalism works because England is a place that has it has class in a way that America doesn't have. Um and you know when I look at Islam again a, it's, it's Islam is a deeply civilizational religion and yeah, in many ways, more than Christianity. Oh, yes. Yeah. As is, in some ways, Judaism. And again, I think this is part of what I think this is different part... from Judaism because Jews want to go to the Holy Land. Right. Islam, Islam just wants to conquer. Right. Peace will come when the whole world is Muslim. That is when peace will come. That is the Islamic approach. It's a very, it's a tricky thing. And so it's like, the 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 idea that believing that Muslims won't take over is ridiculous. Of course, they'll take over, and and it's like I don't know how people can think any that that would be any different. Like, of course they will, and it's not even like an insult against them. It's just like, what? Of course they will. Well, but but this is exactly what prompts, you know, the Islamist reaction to modernity. So Islamic fundamentalism, in that sense, sees modernity as being foundationally Christian and so must oppose it because they, in that sense, sort of understand the, the conflict of cultures. You cannot... You cannot live in our land and at least not pay our tax. Now we'll give we'll give a certain amount of deference to Christians and Jews because of the formation of the Quran and the time that it grew out of. But this is part of the reason why, you know, India and Pakistan, there's just no I maybe mean, people don't people, you know, people look at Buddhism in America and think, well, Buddhists are well, Buddhists are American Buddhists are so infiltrated by certain Christian themes. But when you look at the the relationship between Buddhists and Muslims in that part of the world, it's like, I mean, we 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 have very little um, we have very little experience with that much, you know, thousands of years of animosity and the amount of violence that that can produce. Well, also because we talk about colonialization, it's just people have such a short history. Like people just don't know history. It's so hilarious. They have this such a they have such a they think that all history happened in the last 100 years or last 200 years. But if we talk about colonization, it's like compare the 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 let's say British colonization of India to the Mughal, you know, power yeah. that were there in India for centuries. And so it's like it's not a Anyways, it's just funny how how just how little people understand about the the history of our world. Um, I guess maybe last question then, if there's anything you want to talk about, uh, we we haven't we haven't had a talk with John um for a while. Um, it's 
where where's where's are we going to do another chino thing i mean nobody i haven't pushed it any are anywhere to set it up um where's where's the conversation with let's say the uh religion that's not a religion the silk roads corner of the corner mm. um where's well, that going yeah it's weird i mean because we had talked about maybe doing an event i know in in israel and then yeah. obviously that's not on the table anymore uh but it was also like we just everybody got super busy. I tried to talk to John a few times in the past. And once he canceled on me, then the other time I canceled on him. But it's just I think it's in some ways it's accidental. I yeah. I, I I hope to talk to him soon. I still I still have a deep appreciation of him. Um, you know, I really need to talk to him about AI. That's what I need to talk to him about. And to because he has a very specific take on AI that that is um alarming to me like in some ways he seems to have a deep insight into some of these questions and some of the aspects of what he thinks on ai are, are alarming to me like this kind of like okay how do we how do we how do we talk about this um and so that's one of the questions that i want to that was discussion i want to have with them you know in terms of the the religion that's not a religion you know i think i think that I mean, I, I don't want to disparage the, his project, but I think what's going to happen ultimately is that John, you know, is going to offer some amazing tools for people in terms of understanding uh, perspectival knowing and all the different aspects of knowing that he's elaborating and the way in which, you know, we experience our thoughts and our experience in the world. I think that he's going to offer great tools for people. Uh, but I think those things will probably end up being taken up into the more traditional religions. I think that's yeah. what's going to happen. I think what's going to happen is something like the discussion with Bishop Maximus that he's been having, where in some ways he can elucidate and help even Christians understand their own traditions in ways that is very useful and powerful. Yeah. And he'll do the same for Buddhists and others, and that there'll be like this, this kind of... Um, integration you know and john will probably totally disagree with me on this and and but uh i don't know that he would yeah i i, I see that as i see that as part of a silk road project mm. i you know i i'm with you on that page in that i just don't think you're really going to compete against these legacy religions as they're called, because they they're just they're just too old, they're just too big, they're just too powerful. They've got all kinds of they've got all kinds of working code in them that isn't going away. And to actually to actually have something new form is super difficult. Almost any anything that we see as new is usually a retread of something that's already been out there. And now it's just taking on a new element because of technology and globalism. Yeah. And there is like there's something to say about Kairos in the sense that, and I think this is something that people don't totally understand about the way that I talk about even Christianity is that <clears throat> Christians have the idea that Christ will return and that the return of Christ will inaugurate a new reality. And so there is a sense in which this thing that we've got here, this even this Christianity, even this whole thing, the whole liturgy, the whole thing, everything we're doing, that that's not it. That's not the fullness of it. That there is something that will happen at some point, a point that you cannot predict, a point that you cannot control, a point that you cannot direct, 
that will bring about a new beginning. And that's the thing about Kairos is that if once you once you kind of understand that, you realize that, you know, I talked to Rafe Kelly recently and I gave this example because he was trying to understand Kairos. And he said, you know, when you when it's time to know, to wash the dishes, you know it's time to wash the dishes because the dishes are set are, are dirty and they're on the counter and you have soap and you have water and you have something to put them in. And then when all of that comes together, then you know and everybody knows that now's the time to do the dishes. But if you're skiing on the hill and you decide I'm going to do the dishes now, well, you can't do the dishes because you can't force Kairos. You can't, you can't decide when it's time for the change to happen. And I think that that's one of the things I'm trying to help people understand with, with Christianity. It's like, this is, this is it folks. Like you don't have the leisure of changing the world. Hmm. You don't have the leisure of changing the reality you live in. You don't have the leisure of changing, and let's use a more Christian language. You don't have the leisure of changing the revelation that you have received and, and the, the tradition that you have received from those that followed Christ. Like you just don't have that. And if you try to make something new up, then you're just going to create a weird parasite, like a weird kind of semi thing, like a hybrid uh, confused thing that's going to look like a mixture to everybody, it's all it's going to look disjointed and like a mixture to everybody because that's the reality of Kairos. AI and technology. I mean, I'm I don't know if you saw John did a conversation with Sam Tiedemann, who you might have seen Sam on some of my videos. He's he actually works for Google. And so he's had a fair amount of contact with AI development and he's he's much more on the same page with you. And I think the more we see from AI, the more we see that at least some of these large language models um, are not going to be what people want them to be. Um, some of the, I, I use some AI tools to generate thumbnails sometimes, but after you work with these tools, after you work with these tools for a certain amount of time, you very much see how shallow they are. And how why the large language models they've sort of sort of kept over here because they have the problem of recursion. You yeah. just once these things start feeding into each other, it'll just you know, it it'll just become unreal. Yeah, like um, generations of cannibalism don't lead to healthy <laughs> populations. To say that's a good that's a good image. It's like cannibalism is not a long term. Uh, it's not, not a, a good long term strategy. Right. <laughs> so, um, and I think. But at the same time, I do see how even our, even the dumb social media in combination with human beings is, you know, it, it produces a lot of chaos and a lot of, a lot of chaos in individuals' lives. It, it, it's, it's tremendously powerful and potentially destructive. Do, do you think we're going to see I, I think your garments of skin image it's not yours of course but what, what you've sort of you've given it to me i'll say that um has been helpful is and and you get well well, well let me ask you this question a lot of people a lot of people aren't going to watch <laughs> A lot of people in my corner aren't going to subscribe to Daily Wire because it's Daily Wire, and you've done the end of the world thing on there. And I do subscribe because I, um, you know, I keep an eye on. Often the last half hour of Jordan's conversations are the best half hour. Um, what's 
where do you think this is going and and why did what talk about the daily wire thing because that is go from the ai to daily wire well but 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 that's not disconnected because in a sense when you when you work with someone like daily wire you're not working with an ai they're not an ai but they are a they are a body oh yeah for sure yeah and um and you know they AI or AI Daily Wire has afforded a different style of video, let's say, than what you have on your channel. It's more produced. It's you know, it's and it's I think it's a well done product. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, it's it's not that complicated. The the Daily Wire question is not is not very complicated. The Daily Wire question is very similar to Arc and to a lot of the things that that I end up doing, which is which is Jordan offers, gives me an, like basically offers me an opportunity and says, right, do you want to do this? And I'm like, okay, sure. I'll do that. You know, uh, that's, that's, that, that's really how daily wire happened, which is that in one way, Jordan was signing with daily wire and then he was doing these specials with them and he wanted me to be on the special. So he did the, we did the Western civilization one, which hasn't come out yet, uh, where he wanted me to be on the special. And so I ended going, and then the Exodus seminar, which he wanted me to be on. And then I met with the Daily Wire people and they said, you know, hey, Jordan would like you to maybe do a special with us. And I said, sure, I'll do a special with you, whatever. Like, I don't, you know, it's it's like I don't, I am, I am, how can I say this? Like, I have something that I care about that I want to see happen in the world and I that I think is important. And I, and I, I see that there's a transformation afoot and I feel like I have enough, I have a capacity or an opportunity with my brother as well to help people make sense of what's going on and to make sense of where we're going and to maybe help people see what they can grab onto as this change is happening. And that's what I care about. And I don't actually care that much about the vehicle by which that's possible for me to happen, which is why, you know, I rarely say no. If like a big podcast asked me to come on, I'll say yes. It's the same. Like people say, like, well, why are you talking to Russell Brand? You know, all these allegations and all this stuff. And, you know, it's dangerous. And, you know, you don't want to be associated with them. And it's like, I don't, I don't, I just don't see things that way. You know, I, I, I just see like, hey, here's a bunch of people that, that haven't heard what I think is important. And so I have a chance to say that. And that's the way I see I don't have a contract with Daily Wire at all. I don't have a, I don't have a any allegiance to them or any. I don't owe them anything, and they don't owe me anything. But if they ask me to do something and it makes sense to me to do it, and I can reach an audience that I haven't reached yet, then I'll say yes. I I didn't mean to. I didn't want to put you on the defensive. I wanted to know, but I understand why because I don't like the thing with Daily Wire is that it's not me. Like I'm not. I would say like a lot of eighty percent of what Daily Wire does, I. I probably agree with. And then there's some things that they do or they that they kind of represent or say that I really don't agree with. And so it's like, I know, I, but I know even people that follow me closely are like, why are you doing this thing with Daily Wire? Like, what's the, what's the, what's the, what's the angle here? Like, what's the game? There's no game. There's just, you know, like I have, I know what I have to say. Like, I know the things that I think that I, that I have to say to the, to the people that are willing to listen. So. Well, I tell people, I, when people people ask about the series because it's behind a paywall and i tell people that if they listen to your channel regularly there's probably nothing they're going to learn in that series that they haven't heard you talk about already 
Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just more, maybe a little more compressed and maybe a, a more edited and kind of high polish, uh, well, well done. So it's like if you watch my, yeah, if you watch all the videos that I talk about how a world functions and the structure of a world and the videos that I talk about what an end is and what the what the end of something looks like. I mean, that's yeah. what I talk about. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But you have you watched the whole thing? I haven't watched the whole thing. I've watched two episodes of it so okay. far. But and um, I don't talk about AI by the way because it was recorded like a year and a half ago before. The oh, was it really? Thing. It was recorded a long time ago oh, oh. before the whole thing kind of exploded. A near nearly two years ago now, actually. So. Well, I, 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 it's yeah. AI, like so many things to me, we think we know what it is and we have a sense of something of it, but I don't know. I, I don't know how much I, I, it's really hard to say what's going to come down the road because that's just how history works. Things yeah. come down the road and it's like, oh. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how Twitter, I didn't know how Twitter was going to impact American elections. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not how AI is going to impact American elections. But the, the one thing that we can know from the Bible about AI and, 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 and Christianity about AI is that there is an image in, in scripture about the idea of making your own God like that is part of our tradition of understanding the idea of creating your own god and so the 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 image of um the image of uh, Moses and Aaron is really the image to go to to kind of understand that is that there's revelation which comes down from heaven but the problem with that revelation is that you don't control it you don't decide when it happens it's it's related to this kairos thing that i mentioned you have to wait for it like you have to wait for Moses to come back down. You don't get to know when that happened. And so because of that, because people like to control and people like to to have to, uh, let's say, orchestrate meaning so that it fits their desires and their purposes, then people make God for themselves and that God affords them what they want. And that's what happens in the story of Exodus, which is that when they make the golden calf, then they have orgies. It's like, the, the the their it gives them what they want it gives them their their desire right and so that is what you can understand what it means to make a god for yourself so it and so the and when you come to the end of the bible and you come to the image of the beast and the image of the beast and how people worship the image of the beast this is the ultimate vision of what that is it's like we will make for you a god and that god will speak to you mm. and will speak to you in a way that will that will make you feel safe that will make you feel whatever that will give you what it is that you want and so we have everything we need in the bible to understand ai and what its danger is and and it just like how can i say this like it, just like we we can also understand that it's not an evil in itself, that it's not something that is evil in itself, but understanding that if it acts a certain way, like if we take it the way that the, the people, the ancient people made a God for themselves so that they would get what they want, then, then we're in trouble. So. Okay. That sounds, that sounds, that sounds reasonable. That sounds it, reasonable. Well, it, it, it still doesn't, 
So it's the I mean, difference even, between- even knowing what we're talking about when we're talking about AI, because my sense is that we've had all sorts of AI around us for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And we just haven't seen it. And it's very similar to the question of the, that we've been talking about of agencies higher than ourselves, that modernity sort of puts a cloak on it and says, no, 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 human beings are the top of the pinnacle. And it's like, yeah, and so, but it's an acceleration of things, like you said, that are already there, that yeah. already exist. It's not, it's not like it's this completely new thing. It's just, it's just, it's a garment of skin question. It's just increase in power, uh, an increase in power towards our desire, and that's why it can easily become a uh, god, yeah. right? And that's why because because it gives us what we want, that's how it easily becomes. So, so a car can be an idol too. Like, you know, these. If so, someone who buys a car, you know, for the prestige that it gives them and, you know, treats it that way, then they're that for all intents and purposes, that car is an idol. Uh, but it's like we it's not like it's also it's not like this is a special thing. It's all, this is also one of the problems actually in the Bible is that we have this idea that idolatry is like a really special thing that only happens to really evil people <laughs> that like that, like have the idol up on a pedestal and give flowers to it and like yeah. bow down to it. It's like seeing that will make you completely misunderstand what idolatry really is. And the real the reality is that we all engage in idolatry all the time and we constantly have to ask forgiveness and we constantly have to be re transformation of our intelligence constantly to in order to to uh, free ourselves from those idolatries and and submit ourselves to the true to the true god so it's better to understand it that way and so that because people are always asking themselves like you have people i mean people ask themselves like if i use chat gpt like is it evil like am i invoking a demon and it's like what are you asking these are not the questions you should ask right it should be you should be looking at yourself and how you engage with it not not the thing itself like so i use chat gpt as it's it's like if you want to ask a technical question to something or if you want to reference it's like it's 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 it works well it's a search engine in some yeah. ways a little fallible in some ways if the more you know about some things but no it's it can be super useful so all right, Jonathan, I know that five years ago when we started this thing, I mean, if you'd go a half hour, 45 minutes, you're like, I don't like doing these things for very long. And exactly. you've changed. We've gone an hour and a half and I've pestered right. you. I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to talk about that I haven't brought up yet. But um... no, I think I think that, you know, in some ways, I mean, obviously, 2024 is going to be a crazy year. So people need to obviously stay attentive to what's going to happen. But I think in some ways there I think that. I don't know if you if you agree with me, but I think in some ways we've been working at this now for a long time. If you look at, you know, I started in 2017, I think around the same time you did too. Yep. Uh, and so we've been doing this for a long time and I feel like we're now seeing the fruits of some of the things we've done that we started planting a while ago. And so in some ways, I it's great because in some ways we can kind of rejoice in that and and hopefully start to water the 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 plants that are that are growing. And so I, on the one hand, I see a lot of madness coming, but I also see a lot of, a lot of, a lot of joy in seeing the fruits of of that work, you know, yeah. play out. So I think that's kind of where I see, and I see the same with 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 your channel and and uh, the people around it and the little corner people. I see that type of, I see a kind of maturity that is setting in, uh, and I think that is, I think that's wonderful. Yeah. No, I I agree, and it's been. I mean, for me, 
it's been a it's been a it's been a huge blessing and i think a lot of i mean six years ago you know people were just finding christianity and not knowing anything and and many many people have they become rooted in a church their families have been stabilized i was just this morning talking to to cassidy and she was bouncing her baby on her lap and she's you know she and ferdy who they met you know in this thing and they're like you know this baby is a living representation of this ministry and um so no god god has been good and i think that's that's exactly the right balance because when when we talk about this end of the world stuff and it's it's you you have a way of talking about of sort of balancing the eschatological and the perennial in the proper way because it's it's kairos and it's chronos and those those don't go away mm. um there's always these kairos moments but there's also also the ongoing chronos and so in that sense um you know we await we await the um the second coming of Christ, you know, sort of the ultimate, the ultimate Kairos, but he continues to come. And he can, mm, you know, yeah. when we say when when we say at Easter he is risen, we don't mean just in the past. Yes, he 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 has risen. He is risen and he is coming. And it's it's all of those together. And you know, we've seen, you know, God has blessed, uh, God has blessed my work, God has blessed your work, and um we pray that he continues to use us and um i think he will yeah thanks paul thanks for everything you do it's good to talk to you it's a good place to land the plane <laughs>